I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds. It's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 99, we read The Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams and International Realities by John Mearsheimer, published in 2018. John Mearsheimer is the R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Service Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago, where he has taught since 1982. That's quite a while. He graduated from West Point in 1970 and then served five years as an officer in the U.S. Air Force. He received his Ph.D. from Cornell in 1980. Mearsheimer has written extensively about security issues and international politics, and he's written many articles and received several academic awards. All right, here's his thesis. He says, my basic argument is that the United States was so powerful in the aftermath of the Cold War that it could adopt a profoundly liberal foreign policy commonly referred to as liberal hegemony. The aim of this ambitious strategy is to turn as many countries as possible into liberal democracies while also fostering an open international economy and building formidable international institutions. From the beginning... Liberal hegemony has, was destined to fail. So he's going right at it. And it did, he says. This strategy invariably leads to policies that put a country at odds with nationalism and realism, which ultimately have far more influence on international politics than liberalism does. American foreign policymakers would be wise to abandon liberal hegemony and pursue a more restrained foreign policy based on realism and a proper understanding of how nationalism constrains great powers. And he'll tell us a little bit about both realism and nationalism. My goal in this book, he says, is to describe what happens when a powerful state pursues this strategy, liberal hegemony, at the expense of balance of power politics, which is realism. So the foreign policy establishment, bipartisan foreign policy consensus that's basically ruled in America more or less since... uh, well, the early days of the Cold War. I've said this many times. We've said it on the podcast, I think a couple times too. During the 2016 presidential campaign, Hillary Clinton's foreign policy and Marco Rubio's foreign policy were almost completely indistinguishable. Mm -hmm. You say, how could that be? Well, there really is kind of a, a, on the margins, there's some differences, no doubt. But the crux of it, the core of it, the, the fundamentals are totally in alignment. And it basically tracks what Mearsheimer is arguing is the liberal hegemony, which is that liberal democracies, like uh, uh, Fukuyama um, somewhat indicated, is that that's sort of the end of, of and the best there is. So our liberal hegemony means essentially like America is has both has the very best that there is and should go about trying to spread that around the world. And in some ways, that is become complete common sense to us, right? I mean, you're Uh like, yeah, Yeah. of course. Yeah, of course that's what it is. But Mearsheimer is like slapping us a little and saying like, actually, there's a lot of problems with that. Yeah, and he he doesn't, um, yeah, when you say both sides are are on the same page, you know, Rubio and Clinton and then Bush and everybody else, that 
Mearsheimer doesn't paint that as though it were some sort of like deep state conspiracy. He just he sees it as sort of the natural outcome of a liberal state that, like every other kind of power, we want other countries to be more like us. You know, I mean, the way he describes it, he says, because liberalism prizes the concept of inalienable or natural rights, committed liberals are deeply concerned about the rights of virtually every individual on the planet. This universalist logic creates a powerful incentive for liberal states to get involved in the affairs of countries that seriously violate their citizens' rights. You know, I mean, and, and it makes sense if you remember back after the Cold War was ending. You know, I mean, communism was falling seemingly everywhere. Fascism was long dead. Other sort of repressive regimes were starting to open up, especially deprived of uh, Soviet support. And it, it, it did seem sort of like a, like a springtime for humanity, uh, you know, a real just a a beautiful time you know there was good reason to be hopeful and there was good reason to think as fukuyama did that and you know the, the extent to which he said this is exaggerated like we said in that episode but it you know to think this is this is our final form this is it you know we are liberal dem- democratic governments is the way it's going to be because look we've tried everything else and they all stink and i i think that's not it's not unnatural then for people who care about liberal democracy to want to sort of expand that out and to, and to say, well, you know, like nationalism, that's, that's not really a theory. It's just, we like ourselves. Liberalism, we're broad minded. We like everybody. We all think, you know, same kind of rights, same kind of privileges, same kind of you know, nature of humanity, same virtues. It's universalist, like Mearsheimer says, and it's universalism I think always tends to that sort of uh, megalomania, maybe, or monomania. Uh, every, you know, you, if you think you've discovered the one way to live, how are you going to not tell people about it? And if you have discovered that and you're telling everyone about it and you also have the biggest army in the world, how are you not going to give them a little nudge? I can see it being very tempting. and that, But then that's how you end up in after 9-11, saying, you know, none of this would have happened if those countries were liberal democracies, right? So, what are you going to do? Make them into liberal democracies. They must like it, right? These are universal values, not just American ideas or European ideas. You know, uh, look, the Japanese like it, right? Uh, they didn't used to, but we made them, and now they do, and we can do that for everybody. It, it, it's a very natural progression, but as Mearsheimer points out, it, it it runs up against the fact that not everyone likes it, nationalism is real and he gets into that a lot that just that people think you know people in one country favor some values and people in another country favor different values and that's just that's just people that's just countries that's how it is liberalism can't really compete with that when push comes to shove in his telling it's kind of like you're sitting at a, a big feast and you've you have this uh, delicious cheesecake and you you're just enjoying it so much and you've you've just realized or come to the conclusion that this is the greatest cheesecake that's ever been ever been invented and you're like of course you want to share it you know say hey you you guys should try this cheesecake it'd be great and i think that's the the natural sort of mentality but he says uh, liberal states have a crusader mentality hardwired into them that is hard to restrain and you, you talked about this the universal logic just creates incentives it pushes them so it's not just this cheesecake is delicious you should totally try it it, it becomes like 
no, you must try it. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean you don't like it? <laughs> yeah, what do you mean you don't like it? I don't believe that. And then you have people saying, well, you know, some people just don't like cheesecake. Everyone likes cheesecake. This is, their, you know, we don't, all right, that, that's just uh, racist and ethnocentric. And, you know, to say that somebody wouldn't like cheesecake, of course they do. And, uh, you know, what his argument is to say, this enthusiasm, he says, notwithstanding, liberal hegemony will not achieve its goals and its failure will inevitably come with huge costs. The liberal state is likely to end up fighting endless wars, which will increase rather than reduce the level of conflict in international politics and thus aggravate the problems of proliferation and terrorism. Because he, he makes this, he, ma- he makes a point where in, in some ways we're like, yeah, of course, the, the point of if, you know, individual rights should be, um, sh- should be uh, preferenced and held up and, uh, and that's what we should um, seek to build up is, uh, is the right of the individual. And, you know, you and I think would probably agree with that. And as certainly as my the libertarian side of me is very much about that too, but we take the next step, you know, the liberal hegemony, uh, hegemony, this idea is that, uh, countries like America take the next step and say, no, you need to take it. You must take it. It's only because of your leadership that you don't want it. You know, you actually do. You don't understand that. And so we're going to go spread democracy by force. And, uh, you know, it's not quite as crass as that. It's, but kind of when you describe it in the terms that Mearsheimer is describing it, you're kind of like, oh, yeah. I mean, when you, when you say it that way, it's, it's kinda, <laughs> that is, that's a much different prospect than uh, President Bush saying, freedom-loving peoples around the world, you know, we just want to bring them freedom so that they can share the same uh, liberty and success and prosper, uh, you know, prosperous economies as we have. And I think to our souls, we're like, yes, yes, absolutely. And there's a big part of me that totally believes that still. But what Mishraim is saying is that that's all fine and good. But when you take the next step and say, but now we need to spread it, that's where you're going to run into problems because not everyone is on the same page. You might say not everyone's prepared for it, or you might say not everyone actually wants it. I mean, he, he goes so far as to say that the idea that individual rights are paramount is just completely wrong. Now, like that, I think that hits us right in the numbers when it comes to like our, uh, founding and what, uh, what the the founding fathers had in mind, this ideal of America that's just so core to us. Mm-hmm. And it's it's hard for us to take. And I'm not sure I really agree with him. But he does go so far to say that most people around the world actually aren't all that concerned with individual rights, maybe their own. And you might be able to stretch it and say, yeah, we're, we're kind of worried about our other countrymen. But they sure don't care about the other countries. They don't care about other races or other ethnicities. That's just not on their radar. It's not something they're worried about at all. Yeah, I, I think I'm with you. I, I actually do think that liberal democracy is the best government going, and that it's probably where, if it were up to me, everyone would end up. And that's why I supported the Iraq War <clears throat> back when it happened. And it wasn't so much about the WMDs, which I was like. A lot of countries have WMDs. You know, that's that's not a reason to start a war. In fact, it's a reason not to because they might use them on you. Right. But, but I did think, you know, the Iraqi people were oppressed by a dictator, which they were, uh, and that they would welcome 
liberal democracy would welcome rights and and freedoms you know freedom of expression free economy all the all the good things that we have here in america i thought well why wouldn't they want that right everyone does and they didn't i mean maybe they will someday i mean they, they liked voting they they have elections and they're freer now than they were although the, the costs were pretty horrendous i i think I'll differ from Mearsheimer and I'll say that I, I think that eventually they will, but I don't think you can, you can drag them to it or, or just say you're a democracy now, go, go vote, respect each other's rights all of a sudden. You haven't done it before, but now you're doing it. You know, I think it in America, it took so long for that to develop, you know, and, and we, we started off lucky in a way because some of those ideas were present in, in England and even back into Anglo-Saxon times. So that, that you know, we had that sort of a a leg up, but even compared to other colonial nations, where you know a, an active parliament wasn't really a thing in some of these other countries, there are more absolute monarchies and whatnot. So we had that going for us. But I I think I don't know. Maybe this is probably equally condescending, but I think it might be kind of like dealing with an addict in that. You could drag a dude to rehab, but if he doesn't want to go there, it's not going to reform him just sitting in a meeting. Mm. He's got to want it. He's got to do it of himself and say, yeah, this is what I need. And then maybe the Iraqi people and, and the Iranian people and the Russian people will all one day say, yeah, you know, we should respect human rights and we should respect natural rights and we should vote on our leaders instead of just having these fake elections like they do in Russia and whatnot. But I, Dropping bombs isn't going to make them think that, you know, and rolling in with tanks isn't going to make them think that. It's it's going to, as, as Mearsheimer suggests, that's just going to activate that nationalism even harder because here's this, you know, this outside power trying to tell you what to do, you know, trying to tell your country you have to be like us. Well, nobody likes that. So, you know, I speaking as one who's been on the other side of it, I can say it's an alluring theory, liberal hegemony because it sounds great it sounds like it helps everybody you know it sounds like it makes life better for people around the world gives them rights and freedoms they never had you know it's hard to say you don't like it but they don't not all of them and you know maybe they'll come to it in time but i i think he's right that and you know he says the united states has been at war two out of every three years since 1989 fighting seven different wars (laughs) now some of those weren't full-on wars, but I, I take his point. It's true. He said, we should not be surprised by this. Contrary to the prevailing wisdom in the West, a liberal foreign policy is not a formula for cooperation and peace, but for instability and conflict. And I, I remember back, he talks about Rwanda a few times here, how we didn't intervene there. But I remember people talking about like a duty to protect in those days. Like it was, like that was just a more extreme sort of liberal hegemonic hegemonic attitude that you know something's going wrong in the world we have a duty to get in there and make it right because that's that's what would that's what the world needs i mean we'll, we should take that up in just a minute we're talking about ukraine because obviously that's the example that's right in front of our face as far as the for duty sure to protect but there is something profoundly ironic about about america or any other uh, he- hegemonic power sort of saying like um we're going to do this great thing for you, whether you like it or not. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to do it with tanks and we're going to do it with bombs and we're going to do it with, you know, uh, just, we know how much uh, horror and 
and just, um, um, you know, mayhem and carnage emerges from any, any war. I mean, this is my biggest problem with war is, man, the costs are so incredibly high. But before we get to uh, Ukraine and talk through that, and, and he had some extremely controversial comments about it just a few weeks ago, but um, let's talk about his uh, conception of nationalism. Because this is what he's saying has much more sway as nationalism and realism when it comes to most of the world. He says, nationalism is an enormously powerful political ideology. It revolves around the division of the world into a wide variety of nations, which are formidable social units, each with a distinct culture. Virtually every nation would prefer to have its own state, although not all can. Nationalism places great emphasis on self-determination, which means that most countries will resist a liberal great power's efforts to intervene in their domestic politics. Um, in practice, the vast majority of people around the world do not care greatly about the rights of individuals in other countries. This is the point that we already made. You know, nationalism is a particularist ideology from top to bottom, which means it does not treat rights as inalienable. Now, I think that uh, liberalism and realism, those are political science theories that, uh, you know, that when, when we have our pointy hats on, we, we talk through. Nationalism is something different. I mean, nationalism is more descriptive. We're describing how people behave, which is essentially like saying, you know, that the human condition is that they actually like to be part of a unit. They like to be part of a, a broader whole. I mean, in many ways, our podcast is dedicated to the idea that people do actually really want to feel like they belong. They want to feel like they're some, part of something bigger. So nationalism could, depends on how we define it, it could be as simple as, yeah, you have a love of your own country. You feel patriotism in your bones. You know, you actually care more about other people of your uh, ethnicity or your, you know, your country, your own countrymen, than you care about uh, someone afar off. On the other end of the spectrum for nationalism, you have situations like what we saw in World War II and uh, Nazism and fascism, where where it becomes uh, a real motivating factor in, um, in the minds of, of the people and society. And it's more than just cohesion and patriotism. It becomes, it becomes a, a concept of, of action where, where you're going to go out and, and force things. And I think what Mearsheimer is saying is there's a little bit of an equivalence here that liberal hegemony, although the motives may be better, they're essentially pursuing the same type of uh, policies, which is to go out and create um, carnage um, through war and to force people to do things. Now, the the intent and the motivations may be more pure in some uh, metaphysical sense, but essentially, it's it's creating the same type of problems. And you know, this was during during the Iraq War. There's plenty of critics who would say, you know, like, um, what about the Iraqis? Remember them? And I'll admit that uh, the the Iraqis, I'm 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 a little ashamed to admit this, but but the Iraqis were not necessarily my concern. I I, I didn't love the war and I wasn't in favor particularly of it, but that wasn't necessarily the reason why. <laughs> hmm. um, and in retrospect, I'm like, why shouldn't it have been? You know, I mean, why shouldn't it have been? It, it, sh- it certainly should have been. Um, but uh, I am just as susceptible as anyone as far as when it comes to sort of the human nature of being more worried about our domestic um, 
problems and just sort of saying like, why, why do we need to solve problems that are um, thousands and thousands of miles away when we have so many problems here? And uh, when we're talking about, you know, $3 trillion spent yeah. on war, you know, there's a lot of things that we could spend that on. Yeah. And we're going to be paying it back for a long time for, for what, right? Yeah. But when, when he talks about nationalism too, I think he, you, you alluded to this is that people, when you bring up nationalism, uh, people who are on the liberal side of things will act, well, they'll sort of give you a straw man version of nationalism, you know, like what you mean, like German nationalism, you know, which is seemingly always bad, but it's not, I mean, the Swiss love their nation too, and they don't mess with anybody, you know, mm-hmm. they just do their banking and their chocolates and their watches and they don't, you know, they're neutral, you know, there's Norwegian nationalism, there's Irish nationalism, you know, these, these countries aren't invading anyone. It, it is like he says, and like you said, it wanting to belong to something. And liberalism is like we've discussed in some of the other books, um, like Deneen's book. Liberalism is atomizing. It's it's the triumph of the individual, which, you know, coming as it did, you know, hundreds of years ago was probably needed because there wasn't a lot of room for individualism in those days. And you were sort of, you go where you're, you're told, you stay where you're born. And there, there, was, there wasn't a lot of mobility. But we've come so far the other way that, you know, when you, I hear people who run down this nation who, who live in it and think, well, well, what are you, what are you for then? You know what? I mean, I don't think that everything America does is, has, has been perfect, but just like, I don't think everything my parents do is perfect or my wife or my sister or, or anybody. Right. But they're still, they're still my family. I still defend them. They're right. They're my people. America's our people. Um, that doesn't mean we can't criticize it. It means that, we love it anyway, even as we criticize. And that's, that's what's so confusing to me when people really revolt against the whole idea of, of nationalism and national pride and national membership in this collective. I mean, I think you and I, I mean, love America, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, do. I do. I do think America's better. Sorry, I do. You know? Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot that we have to be proud of. And uh, America certainly made mistakes and just like any, any country and any family, just like you gave an example, you know, there's things that we've done that we regret things that we could have definitely done better, but overall it's a really amazing nation and uh, people that's actually more than just a people because you're bringing together so many ethnicities where can you, can you name an example in the world where that's happened elsewhere? Mm-hmm. No, right. It, no, you can't. And I think what's so, hard to divide nationalism from liberalism too is that part of America's national ethos is liberalism. There's a weird overlap there because these universal values that he talks about liberalism holding, those are American values also because our nation was conceived as a liberal yeah. enlightenment project. So are is, is respect for individual rights an American idea or a universal idea? Maybe it's both. But when we talk about what's great about America too, we're also part of what defines our nation is respect for those liberal principles, at least here at home where it gets weird is, and he, this is, he makes a point here that I had not considered in these terms, but he makes it several times. The book is somewhat repetitive, but he says, you know, that liberalism basically one of its central ideas is that people are going to disagree on the right way to live and, you know, the right path to the good life. That's why we have Liberty. So each person can find his own virtue and his own, way of living and his own system of the world, his own religion, his own practices, whatever, you know, that's, 
part of the idea of liberty. And we've, many authors have covered that background. But what Mearsheimer points out is, how then can you say that a nation who doesn't agree with liberal principles is wrong? Yeah. Right. It isn't, isn't it natural? It, if, if we can say that this family and the family across the street from me and the family up the block all have different conceptions of what's important in life, can't we say that also about, you know, France has this conception, Germany has this, Italy has this. How is it different? And, and unlike within this liberal society where we have police and courts of law to keep us from killing each other over this, in in the uh, international venue, there is no such authority. So nations are going to come into conflict over very deeply felt disagreements. And that that's something that liberalism recognizes at the, at the tiny level of, of individual choice, but does seemingly unable to grasp at the national level. I, I thought it was a pretty good skewering of the, uh, the problem of being universalist on the one hand and particularist yeah. on the other. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about it. So let's take up his... John Mearsheimer himself is a realist. He's probably the most uh, prominent realist in America. He says, uh, so what is realism? He says, first, states are the main actors on the world stage, and there is no centralized authority above them. International institutions like the League of Nations or the United Nations are basically secondary powers. And of course, this is true. And I, I, it always tweaks me a little bit when people talk about uh, international law, and even mm-hmm. with this Ukraine situation, so many saying this illegal war, and I'm kind of like, international law is just fiction, you know. I mean, it's fiction yeah. written up on on in the stars. So there's if there's nobody to enforce it, then it's essentially it's just power politics at the end of the day. You know, who's who's stronger? I got to jump in because I 100% agree with that. And that's that's something I took international law in law school. I was I was on the International Law Journal. And I can tell you, it's never made any sense to me. Like there's treaties that countries agreed to. Okay, that's a law. I mean, you got to enforce it, but it's all. But then there's these other things like just international norms. Like, well, it's nice if everyone follows them, but that's not that's not the same as like a statute in a book that police will arrest you for violating. You know, there's right. no police unless it's us. Yeah. And then, yeah, but sorry, that's, that's a pet peeve of mine too. And I'm glad that glad he brings that up and, and we discussed it because there is no such thing. Like 90% of international law is just like some dude's opinion. <laughs> I mean, it's me saying, uh, I'm going to hear, hereby outlaw any person named Kyle. And you're like, okay, cool. But how are you going to, you know, yeah. g- good for you. So <laughs> All right, so that's the first, is that there's no centralized authority. Second, all states have some offensive military capability, although that uh, differs widely. Third, states can never know for certain whether a potential rival's intentions are benign or hostile. I mean, this is, this is a really important point. Capabilities, on the other hand, are usually visible and reasonably easy to gauge. We think that our intent and our motivations are wide open for the world and so obvious. And I tend to think that, too. Mm-hmm. But if you're an enemy looking at America or if you if you worry about America or view us uh, skeptically, then you're not necessarily going to take, you know, the, our, we have an open society. So it seems like it's obvious what our motivations are. But you could still say, I don't know what their motivations are. I do know that they could come in and do this, this and this, <laughs> you know, and what are we going to do about it? So that gets to his fourth survival is every state's primary goal. 
Fifth, states are rational actors. They have the ability to devise strategies that maximize their prospects for survival. Finally, he says, states understand that the best way to survive in an anarchic system in which they can never be certain about the intentions of other states is to be as powerful as possible relative to their competitors. So realism is essentially saying, yeah, 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 yeah. The, all these ideals and all these high-minded thoughts, those are great and, uh, you know, whatever, good for you. But at the end of the day, the way countries behave is they want to survive. And they see what their neighbors are doing. They see what other countries are doing. And they want to make sure that they have the defensive capabilities to handle it. They see the uh, potential aggression. They know what's what may be possibly is coming. They look at the capabilities of another country. You know, a country could be arming up like, like China and, you know, and then China says, Oh no, no, we're not, you know, we're not doing anything. We're just, you know, we just want to make sure that we have our, you know, our defenses and your, and the the surrounding countries are like, yeah, right. That's what you're doing. You know, how do we know that? It looks to us like you're, you're, you're doing an arms buildup. We need to do something about it. So in the, at the highest level, realism is essentially saying like, at the end of the day, countries don't really behave based on their ideology or their, their ideals. Instead, they use their ideals as a pretext for whatever it is that they decide to do based on these real realist, uh, realistic factors, namely like what others are doing, how to survive, how to stay ahead, how to stay one step ahead, make sure that you're covered and all these different things. Now, I think that the strong criticism of realism is, Realists tend to, to, you know, there's, there, there's a, there's a, an arrogance to even the term like realist, like, oh, you do this, but you know, I'm, I'm actually, I actually see things how they really are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I think, I think some of the criticism is essentially like, yeah, some of these factors in realism that, that are, are absolutely factors that are in play, but there are other factors too. Sometimes people actually do act on nationalism. Sometimes they actually do act on, uh, you know, liberal ambition. Sometimes they do just have a psychopathic leader who wants to, who just wants to smash or who wants to take power. You know, there's, there's all kinds of different reasons. It's not just this high level, like um, pointy headed, deep thinker, like a uh, chessboard. Inst- you know, there's all kinds of different factors that, uh, that are part of, you know, that feed into why countries do what they do. Yeah. And I think why we do what we do also has to, it can't be just about the chess game and the balancing act. That's got to be a part of it because like he said, survival is a thing. If you don't survive, none of the other stuff matters. Okay. But to survive and to, and to, and to be America as we want to be must include not just the pragmatism, but also the principles. Now in the cold war, sometimes we made some deals with some shady countries because it was either us or the Russians, right? We had, you know, Nixon went to China to kind of get them out of the Soviet orbit, a little more friendly to us. They were just as bad as the Soviets, but mm. it was good for it was good for the big picture. And we are in a we are in a, a war, a cold war, but it was a lot of people died in it anyway. And there were things that had to be done. When you get to this unipolar world after the communism crumbles, I think it is not unreasonable to be more idealistic in your foreign policy. You know, we didn't have to be friends with dictators anymore. We could, if we thought it was in America's national interest, but increasingly it wasn't. 
we didn't need to leverage them against anyone because there was no one else. It was just us. There were, you know, China was still going, but I mean, of course, at the time we thought they were going to be democratic any day now too, just like the other countries did. So I, I think that I, I think he leans too heavily on the old balance of power stuff that is important, but I, I think you have to just like in in a legislature, you get elected with principles, and then you have to be pragmatic, or else you just vote against everything, like uh, you know one of the libertarians does. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you you come in with a, an idea of here's how I think America should be, here's the laws we need to pass, and then you if you get half of that, pretty good. You know, it's better than nothing. So I think that balance of, of principle and pragmatism is part of what should characterize our our foreign policy. I think the Iraq War, uh, uh, people who hated the war will laugh. I think we were too principled and not pragmatic enough. And then I think people on the left who hated that war will say we were absolutely unprincipled and it was just uh, blood for oil, et cetera. I yeah. don't think it was that. I think we really meant it. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think we really were trying to make the world safer for us but also better for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, a little more pragmatism might have made sense there. But to go all the way over to kind of where Mearsheimer is on on the on the Ukraine-Russia thing and saying that it's basically our fault for expanding NATO too close to Russia and isolating Russia and threatening Russia and that, you know, they're going to naturally push back in their sphere of influence. And I, I, I don't see it as an even conversation there. I think we didn't, attack russia and we didn't even let ukraine into nato although i could see why somebody want their country to be in nato now since you know nato countries aren't getting attacked ukraine is so i mean putin's kind of making that case that actually nato and the eu are good things to be a part of you know it's not i mean i i mean i don't want to get off on that but i think he's made a better case for nato than anybody has in 25 years (laughs) Yeah, and we should I should say that uh probably actually the the greatest criticism or the most uh, uh typical criticism of realism is that it's amoral. And mm-hmm. Henry Kissinger is probably the archetype of the realist kind of school of balance of power. And uh he's famous for the fact that he really didn't view things in through a moral lens. You know, it was like uh, he didn't care about Cambodia or you know, what whatever the fallout was for Vietnamese people. I mean, for him, for Kissinger and Nixon, it was very much about, uh, we didn't, you know, we didn't care necessarily, like to your point that the China was uh, just as bad as the Soviet Union. We wanted to move in closer with them so that we could improve our standing in the, in the balance of power uh, across the world. So when it comes to situations like Ukraine, I think a guy like Mearsheimer who, who said, you know, years ago and has said as recently as three weeks ago that essentially America is to blame for Russia invading Ukraine. Like Russia is not actually to blame because it was, it was America and it was in the lead, but all NATO in general encouraging those former Soviet states, the Baltics and, uh, and also Ukraine to join NATO, to be a part and join the Western world and that created a reason for for Russia to be nervous or anxious or upset, and uh, and so it was really just poking and poking and poking at the bear, and so it's our fault that they that they attacked Ukraine. I mean, obviously, I think you and I would just 
just categorically reject that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it, it shows the amorality. Like he's um, the the concern is not at all for the people of Ukraine or the the, the ideal of sp- spreading um, democracy and and progress. You know, it, there's an idealism behind it. Of it's it's the motivations are good, right? But the uh, when it comes to realism, they just think motivations are are uh, naive and just kind of silly girl talk. You know, <laughs> because what countries need to be worried about is their actions have consequences because other other pieces on the chessboard are going to react. And you're going to move your chess piece based on the last move. So I think um, you, you and I, I want to say categorically that uh, I think it's completely absurd the idea that it was America that that's to blame for for Russians uh, attacking Ukraine. And I think this is an example of where realism goes wrong. I, I actually there's a, a lot about the the realist perspective on the world that I agree with, but. Here's where it completely goes wrong. It's very clear to me, I think, that this is led by one person. <laughs> you, yeah. you have Vladimir Putin, who is uh, who is the aggressor, and he has a lot of power, and he's able to move armies. And it doesn't have as much to do with NATO. And I, I, I think it has very little to do with NATO. I really do. I think it has everything to do with he thinks that Ukraine should be part of Russia, or at least completely controlled by it. And uh, so, so Mearsheimer could say, yeah, exactly. He wants uh, Ukraine within its sphere of influence. But then again, what, our, what we do about it is, is almost irrelevant because the Ukrainians themselves were, are a people who are trying to build democracy. And they've obviously had some slip ups and, and it's, you know, they've, they've had two steps forward, one step back kind of thing, but they want it. The people want it. And uh, I guess to some extent you could say America teased by saying, "Hey, you can you can join NATO, but never really intended mm-hmm. to allow them to do that." Now I think yeah. that is a that's a, a very legitimate criticism. But ultimately, the, like the Russians are attacking because Vladimir Putin wants to attack the, the Ukrainians. That's it. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I don't think if if we'd never expanded NATO, would would Russia be run like a New England town meeting now? No, it would still be the same, and it would probably be in some of those countries already yeah. because that. That's kind of what they do. And just like China's still mad about some of the unequal treaties of the 19th century, Russia is, I think a lot of Russians are still mad that they lost. They're mad that they had to give up territory. So, and Putin draws on that. And not that he's, I think he was legally elected once or legitimately elected once. I, I mean, his most recent election was a joke, but you know, there are, there is some constituency for what he's selling in Russia. But at the same time, like you said, I mean, when, if we just, it seems wrong to say, well, Ukraine, that's, you know, that's part of Russia's sphere of influence. Well, when, when they're in the streets for democracy, like they were in 2013, and they, they want the corruption out, they want the kleptocrats, the, everybody bought off by Russia, they want them out, they want to be able to vote for government that's not going to steal from them and not going to suck up to Moscow. Are we supposed to say no? I mean, are we supposed to say no? You shouldn't do that, guys. You're you're too close to uh, to Putin. You should just you know do what he wants. We're never going to do that. I mean, that's it'd be one thing if we started all this. And I think probably in some part of Putin's mind, he thinks that the whole Orange Revolution was a Western plot. You know, I mean, he's a KGB guy. That's 
possibly how he thinks. But I don't think it was. I mean, I'm sure we encouraged it. And a lot of uh, NGOs encouraged it and pro-democracy groups. But that those people in the streets were not uh, crisis actors, like the conspiracy theorists say. They were Ukrainians who were sick of the nonsense and sick of bad government, just like the Belarusians who were in the streets last year and, and the people in Kazakhstan, too, who were both suppressed in their attempts but these people want it they got it and it it would be wrong for us to say well just because of balance of power reasons we're going to encourage you to go back to being a corrupt dictatorship that's that's crazy that's never going to happen america will never do that um like you were saying you know kissinger viewed it as this completely amoral thing and i think when it's, when it, in the midst of the Cold War, that's not the worst because, like Mearsheimer says, survival is the thing. We had to survive that Cold War. We weren't it, now. It seems like, of course, you know, freedom was going to triumph. But nobody knew that in the seventies. You know, Soviets were expanding still, not not contracting. So I, you could see a little amorality in those days might have made sense because it was all about survival. But now we survived. We don't need to be amoral anymore. We don't. We shouldn't be so head in the clouds idealistic that we mess everything up but we can afford to be a little bit principled and, uh, and to encourage other people who are doing on their own the right thing as we see it they're on their own they're bettering themselves bettering their country giving them you know securing those rights that we take for granted but that they didn't always have so i i, I think there was no way around this situation whether we expanded NATO to Poland and the Baltics or not, that it was, there was never a situation that was going to end with us saying, yeah, Russia's right. You guys should knock it off with the democracy. Completely agree. So now we're in this messy kind of purgatory middle ground, because on the one hand, I think it's nonsense that, uh, that America created this problem. On the other hand, I feel like the, the neocons are on, on the march and, uh, both, uh, the, you know, the foreign policy consensus that mm-hmm. most uh, rep- uh, hawkish Republicans and hawkish Democrats, which are most, are in a position now where it's just more, 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 and understandably want to do something more in order to help the Ukrainians, especially how valiantly they've they've fought. And it's just so inspiring. And I think um, Zelensky is incredibly in- inspiring leader mm-hmm. who's like, a year older than us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. good for him. At the same time, I don't want to see our troops in Ukraine. That may be an unpopular statement, but I just don't. Nope. So so where do we want to be? On the one hand, I do think that that some idealism is appropriate because these are freedom-loving people that uh, that need our help and we should find ways to help. On the other hand, I don't think that that this is the time to say, Oh, good. We're back in the saddle. You know, neocons <laughs> are back in the saddle. We're spreading democracy again. Now, you know, we need to take the sword to them. I, I, I just disagree with that as well. So what, where does it leave us? And, and, you know, listeners are sort of like, oh, this guy can't decide. And, and you, you know what? It's tough. I, I don't have a clear answer. I do know that I don't want to see troops, American troops in Ukraine. I'm pretty confident of that. And I don't want to see a World War III. And I don't want to see a uh, nuclear winter. Uh, at the same time, I do want to help. So it's, it's a challenge, and I, I am extremely critical of the Biden administration on so many fronts, and, uh, and I, don't, you know, I don't step back on any of those. But in this case, I do think that they've 
been wise. I mean, by the time people listen to this, they, we will have decided what to do about the planes in Poland, the mm-hmm. MiGs, I hope whether, so. whether to move them or not. And, uh, but I, I, I actually am just, I'm happy to see the administration is acting extremely cautiously on that. So. Yeah, I got to agree. Um, I think we should get those planes to them just like we got planes to Britain in the second world war before we were in it. But people talk about a no fly zone, like that's some kind of like, how do they think that's going to work when the Russians fly anyway? And you got to shoot them down. We're going to be, we're going to be getting in dogfights with Russian jets that, I mean, this is what we worked for decades to avoid is a, a hot war between the two biggest nuclear powers in the history of the world. You know, we've got between us 15,000 warheads. You want to start popping off missiles at each other? Even the, even the little missiles on planes, it leads to bigger things. It seems crazy. Um, but, you know, selling arms and that sort of thing. Hey, hey, we did that through the whole Cold War, both sides, you know. Proxy wars, fine. Help them out. Give them money. Give them material. Give them aid, you know, medical supplies. All these things. I'm for that. Uh, I think it's great that we've been doing that. But people who just want to jump in and uh, act like it's not going to get worse and it's not going to end up with Russians killing Americans and vice versa that I don't know what, what they're thinking. I don't know what they think no fly zone means, but it, it, to me, it, it looks a lot like world war three. Yeah. So I, I'm, I, I'm with you. I think they've actually done a decent job. I, I don't think the Biden administration has been perfect on this. I mean, they just, the way he talks has led to some, like when he said a little invasion might be okay, and then they had to take that back. And, uh, you know, he's not good at, at speaking or, or thinking, but I think what they've <laughs> what they've done mostly has been okay. And I hope like, somebody has a steady hand on the, on the situation. That's a good last word, because whenever people listen to this, they're going to be like, oh, that was totally passe, and they got it, you know, <laughs> overtaken by events and that sort of thing. But All right, that's Mearsheimer. Catch us next time.